Oh yes, hello my friends, welcome back. If one thing has defined the discussion and discourse in 2020, it has been outrage. From zero to 100, real quick, with every single conversation, no subtlety or nuance in what's being said, no goodwill or faith in the other person's side in having any truth or justification at all. It's just cancel them, delete them from the world, call them a bigot as fast as you can. And that gets you the most virtue points from other people on the internet that you've never met. Ashley Dottie Charles is a BBC Radio 1 Extra presenter and her most recent book, Outraged, discusses why everyone is shouting and no one is talking. Given the way that 2020 has gone and the things that you will have seen on the internet, I think this is a topic which we're revisiting an awful lot, and rightly so, right? The, the only two ways that we can communicate are either by speaking to each other or fighting. That's it. That's all you've got. You can use words or you can use fists. And I would much sooner try and get us to go back to using the art of words a little bit more effectively. All right, quick maths. The less that your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money that you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce the costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite and you are improving efficiency by bringing all your business processes into one platform. Over 37 thousand companies have already made the move so do the maths and see how you will profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com modern right now. That's netsuite.com modern But for now it's time to work out why everyone's getting outraged with Ashley Dottie Charles. Could you have realised before writing a book on outrage just how timely mid-2020 would be for it to be published? You know what's crazy? For the past nine months, I've been like, we've got to drop the book now. We've got to drop the book now. Oh, I wish it was coming out now. Oh, we need to come. Outrage is a constant carousel. Anytime I would have released this book, people would have said, what are the odds? You've dropped it in a... This is the world we live in. So I think people are hyper aware now but i think because i've written the book every couple of weeks there's been something that has felt really timely and i've been like oh they're canceling david williams we need to <laughs> we need to release the book oh, oh no 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 it's jk rowling the book needs to come out um it is it's just constant and that i think that's why the book was needed because any time would have been timely the stock price of outrage is uh, is constantly on the up, isn't it? It's like Tesla or something at the moment. So why why did you write a book about outrage a while ago? Like, let's forget this year. Why did you write a book on outrage already? Yeah, so I started this book two years ago. Um, well, two and a half years ago. It took me two years to write it. And I'm somebody who has been one of those voices online. I've had arguments with strangers. 
I've tried to convince people that I've never met that their thinking is wrong and that their belief system is flawed. I've written an open letter to Piers Morgan. I've been that person that I now can't stand, right? I've had pointless arguments. I've been outraged about trivial things. And I kind of reached breaking point, I'd say, and I sort of had an epiphany. And I think when people read this book, they'll each have their epiphany moment. Uh, For me, it was January 2018, and there was outrage about a H&M hoodie, uh, which had been placed on a black boy, and it said, coolest monkey in the jungle. Now, of course, you can look at that through a, a critical lens and say, what, that this is completely tone deaf, it's racist. For me, though, it warranted a conversation about who the hell works at H&M, and why did nobody flag that this could offend people? I don't think the intention was to offend people. I think it was more symptomatic of their employment structure and how flawed it must be if there's nobody from the stage of idea conception to it making it onto the H&M website. If nobody in that conveyor belt of decision-making says, oh, maybe we don't put the monkey hoodie on the black kid. <laughs> if, if there's nobody in that, in that system that notices that, there's a problem in the system. But that doesn't warrant knee-jerk outrage because this is clearly, it's not intentional racism by H&M. A, a multi-million revenue company is not going to one day wake up and say, should be a bit racist today? <laughs> we, yeah. It we throw of, it all away. It harks of negligence or just exactly. idiocy, right? Rather than uh, maliciousness. Exactly. And that was my light bulb moment as I kind of watched the world up in arms, outraged. H&M are racist. Boycott H&M. They've done this deliberately. In that moment, I was like, outrage has gone too far because it's stifling conversation. And we're not going to get anywhere by having this knee-jerk reaction. Being quick to, to, to anger doesn't work in every situation. And I felt as though we'd overinflated the outrage bubble and it had burst for me in that moment. Um, and so I wrote an article about it for The Guardian. And from that article, the book was born. I absolutely love I'm going to read a, the, the passage that you put in from that Guardian article because it is so good. So this is The Currency of Outrage, published in The Guardian, 25th of January 2018. Everyone is offended by everything. It's exhausting. Keeping up with all the non-inclusive, misogynistic, racist, homophobic, transphobic, xenophobic, ageist, culturally appropriating, body-shaming propaganda that seems to litter social me- the social media age. Apparently in 2018, almost anything is subject to the scrutiny of one marginalised eye or another. Being outraged allows you to take the moral high ground. It reaffirms your moral righteousness. It lets you say, I am offended and therefore I am principled. It lets you jump on the bandwagon and pledge allegiance to the latest campaign on your timeline. It gives you a vehicle to add your name to the narrative. It proves that you are following current affairs, albeit from the comfortable vantage point of your Instagram feed. It allows you to place yourself on the virtuous side of the conversation. It says, I am woke. And for that reason, outrage has become currency. So oh, much mate, sense making that. You should have done the bloody audio book, mate. Give it to me. Give it to me. I tell you what, anyone <laughs> out there that needs it doing, head up to Newcastle. But yeah, that, that, that identifies it to me. You're right. And currency is the right word for it. 
It is. It, it's yeah. this sort of tradable commodity. That oh, how so how many how many virtue points did you get today? How many virtue <laughs> points did you get today? I I, I washed a, a black person's feet in the middle of my street. What did you do? Well, I painted some white lines and tried to take over the middle of a of a city. And and it, not even just in a sort of a figurative sense. Um, although loved your analogy there. Um, it genuinely is currency right you can trade off outrage for progress in a very real sense so if you look back at the civil rights movement there was so much currency in that outrage it prompted change you know the suffragettes used the currency in their outrage to get the the, the female vote you know outrage can give you a return on your investment it's not sort of merely ornamental it's not just a a, a figment of my imagination, this idea of currency, it really has value, you know? And I think what we're doing wrong is by aimlessly investing it, because outrage is an investment on an emotional level as well. To apply yourself to something with genuine outrage, it requires impetus. It requires some real effort on your part. So it is an investment of your time, your emotion, your energy. I think our issue is that we don't really look for a return on our investment. We're just kind of throwing our currency out there, you know, and that is where you devalue outrage, where you no longer see the value in it. You know, I think every outrage exchange should have an end goal. You should be seeking a return on your investment. Otherwise, you're just barking at strangers, you know, with, with no ambition. So that overuse of outrage is diluting down the usefulness of outrage. Exactly. So if you imagine just a few trivial things that people have been outraged by, because make no mistake, there are times when we do need to be outraged. But if you look at things we've reacted to, like Scarlett Johansson being cast uh, to play a, a, a trans woman, Jamie Oliver's jerk rice, these things are tone deaf. They are poor decisions, but do they warrant outrage on the same scale as white supremacy of proven moments of misogyny. If we just react in the same way to everything, how do you move the needle when it generally needs to be, when it genuinely needs to be moved? You know, if we're, if we're loud, if the volume is always up, how can you cut through the noise when you really need to be heard? And I think that's the issue. Outrage is just our default setting, so it's lost its power. <laughs> yeah, we need to is. restore factory settings. Do you know what I mean? Go go back a bit so that outrage actually means something when we get there. I understand. So, what's the architecture of outrage in 2020? Is there like a a common narrative or a common structure that it always seems to follow? No, outrage is so multifaceted, and I think. That's part of the problem with it. We don't recognize that nuance. You know, we, we lump things all underneath uh, this umbrella of, of, of cancel culture, which in itself is a myth. But we, we will put uh, uh, J.K. Rowling next to slave owners, uh, next to some mis mistake that um, Philip Schofield made. And it all gets lumped underneath this umbrella of cancelled. And actually... There's no metric system for outrage. There's no, there's no threshold that you pass. And it's like, okay, you're a, you get your badge. You are <laughs> The outrage badge, yeah. You get the outrage badge and it's official. You are indeed cancelled. Every situation is unique and it's different. And the issue is 
our knee-jerk reaction is the same, no matter what the transgression. And I think that's the issue. You know, you, you could be trending number one if you're a mass murderer or, or if you've used somebody's pronoun wrong. You know, you're, you're going to be trending <laughs> in the same way and you're going to be the topic of discussion, which you never want. Rule, rule number one of social media, you never want to be the topic of discussion, right? That, I think that is something we should all avoid is being the main character on, on Twitter on any given day. But it's the fact that we kind of, we respond to all of these transgressions in the same way. And I, what my book aims to do is to point out that it's not just two opposite ends of the spectrum. It's not just warrants outrage, doesn't warrant outrage. It's not, if it was that simple, I'd have written a pamphlet and not a book, right? <laughs> it's about recognizing that there are shades in between the black and the white. And we need to recognize and identify all of those different shades and respond accordingly, rather than just having outrage as our go-to reaction. Something happens, I'm outraged. Something else happened, I'm outraged. It completely, as I said, devalues it. Why are people going to the extreme then? Why are they not deciding to use a more measured response? So first of all, there's something that I refer to as the fear of the fence, right? We are so scared of sitting on the fence because we think, oh, the, the fence is for people who are unaffected or uninformed or it's, it's a place of apathy. I can't sit on the fence. I've got to be either on this side or on that side. And therefore we find ourselves just often out of sheer force, picking a side in the moment and having to sustain our allegiance to that side. Although it's not particularly informed by any real uh, process of, of, of creating a judgment, it's often us just saying, I've got to pick a side, got to go with the moral majority here, I think. Uh, that is bad. That is wrong. Cancel them. Because we fear that allowing ourselves to exist in that middle ground makes us look as though we're disconnected or we, we don't have an opinion. And sometimes it's all right to say, I don't know, or I think I've got a good idea, but I'm willing to listen to other people before I make my mind up. People hate that. People are so scared of that, that corridor of indecision that they quickly enter a room. They're like, can't, can't be in the fucking corridor. Do you know what I mean? But better get in a room. And so we find ourselves just picking a side and we allow the tide of that decision to take us you know you find yourself tethered to this uh idea that you made um just as a knee-jerk reaction you find yourself now pig-headedly defending that idea because again you, you can't look wishy-washy even so if like, it was got... something you maybe didn't necessarily yeah. agree with or understand yeah. in the first place and then yeah you're like shit i was just retweeting charlotte and uh, now i've got to back up my idea why the hell do I feel this way? And, and that is often why we get these heated debates because people are just defending a point of view, that, an arbitrary point of view that they feel they need to remain shackled to. And of course, the internet is so noisy. It's so loud that in order to cut through, we feel we need to be as loud. And, you know, being mildly disgruntled is not loud enough <laughs> on the internet. You've got, you've got to be outraged or I can't hear you, you know? Some ambient displeasure, Look, tepid, <laughs> yeah. some tepid unhappiness isn't going yeah. to make it onto it's the not gonna, page. It's not going to cut it if you want some retweets, mate. Yeah. 
I, I think that's definitely part of it. I wonder how much of it's virtue signaling, how much of it I'm, mm. I, I care more than you because I can use more capital letters or clap hand emojis. Um, like, you know, it, it, it does feel a little bit... Of course. So Sam Harris has this thing uh, in his most recent podcast, which I thought was phenomenal. He calls it performative communication. And I think that absolutely is what a whole bunch of this is, is occurring because a lot of the time, if you see one person's point of view on one topic, you can probably extrapolate out their point of view on a whole bunch of other topics as well, both real and imagined. If yeah. that's the case, you're not a real human. Like you shouldn't <laughs> yeah. have you shouldn't have cookie cutter beliefs at all ever. Absolutely, absolutely. But our our social media feeds are they're kind of a, a PR release. Everything you post and everything you say, every image you share is you saying, "This is who I am. It's my latest PR release. This is what I stand for." So we find ourselves constantly trying to project this image of our best bits you know this is how i feel this is what this is what i do on the weekends this is how i bake it's 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 your highlight reel right and and people find that being outraged is a great moral highlight reel it's like look what i stand for man i'm for the refugees i'm for the women i'm for the muslims i'm for it all look look how good i am and people become more concerned with seeming progressive than being progressive. It's more important that, I, that I'm seen to be like this as opposed to actually being like this. And in the book, I, um, I explore the neuroscience behind it as well. So there's, there's like loads of science. Hit us, behind, hit us, we want to know, tell behind, us. Behind why we act like this, right? There's, there's an endorphin. Anybody who has ever posted a view that they thought was kind of specific to them. This is how I feel on a matter. And then they've started to see the likes and the retweets rack up. That is a rush. That is a biological rush. It's endorphin fueled to be agreed with, right? If I go out in the street and I say, hey man, pick up your litter. That is bad. There's no rush there because nobody saw me do it, right? If I record a video of the of a uh, uh, petrol company pumping their petrol into this picturesque lake, and I shame this company, and everybody rallies behind me and says, "Oh my gosh, this is an abomination," that's going to give me an endorphin rush, and therefore we like to perform our goodness in front of a crowd. It, it becomes more important, as I said, to be seen to be doing the thing as opposed to just doing it. And that is our innate need to be celebrated. And that's been weaponized by having always on communication, social media, which is accessible anywhere in the world. Yeah, absolutely. What are some of your favorite examples of outrage that you looked at from the book? There's quite a few different ones that you go through. Have you got any, have you got any um, of your, fav- your favorite hits? So the, obviously the book explores the weird and the wonderful and the warranted at times, right? Let's not mistake this for a book that says, everybody calm down. This book isn't saying, you know, life should be a free-for-all without consequences. You know, it's, it's more me saying people and circumstances are intricate and they deserve that level of care 
when we, you know, unpack and dissect them. But with that comes the absolutely ridiculous stuff, um, like Austerity Day, which fascinated me when I I wrote the book because you do you get your usual suspects that kind of float around anything contentious like flies on shit, right? And you get your Jamila Jamils and then your Jackman Rose um, and your David Lammies and people that are like, oh, there's something here that I think I need to be a bit angry about. And those, those moments are the ones that fascinate me when they're ridiculous. So Austerity Day was a, a, a private school um, decided that to teach their well-to-do students that not everybody has a larder and a pantry at home and a a garage that can fit three cars. They decided to have austerity day to teach them about the other side of life. Um, So they scrapped their duckle orange on the lunch menu and gave them like jacket potatoes, just root veg and a real, what they thought was a bog standard uh, lunch. You know, to teach these private school kids that there's a life out there unlike your own. You're gonna learn about austerity via a cheap lunch. and there was uproar. There was genuine uproar um, saying that this was, it, it fetishized uh, work, the working class, um, that it was, a, it was an insult to people who genuinely live this way. And for me, that is one of those absurd moments, right? Because yes, there are children that survive on food banks. There are children whose only hot meal is the meal they go to they go to school and get that's their that's their only hot meal of the day austerity is a real major issue you're not going to dismantle that by slagging off a private school in southwest london do you know what i mean and i think our issue with matters like this and why it's so important to highlight in the book the the ridiculous is because we need to take down power structures right there are power structures that need to be dismantled there are entire systems that are flawed and you don't you don't take down the tree by sort of jumping up at leaves and that's what so much of our outrage is it's us like oh i I, I got a leaf i got i got a leaf i slagged off h&m do you know what i mean and and those those are what what i call leaves the sort of the ridiculous moments because yes, realized? they are. They're symptomatic of bigger issues, but they themselves are not the bigger issue. Yeah, it's. I I really do wonder how many people that involve themselves in this performative communication and decide to go for it full full chat on Twitter. I wonder how many of them actually believe the things that they're saying, because it's quite effortful. Like for me to go and take time out of my day to get into big big Twitter wars. I I need to I need to be really compelled to do it, you know. Yeah. Like, I don't want to just do it because I'm because I'm bored. But I wonder how what this spread of these people are that do create this outrage online. Truth be told, as much look as much as I joke about it, and I do in the book, I I joke about this issue um, quite a lot, if I'm being honest. But I joke as as a as a vehicle to make uh, quite an important point, which I think is, it's not a laughing matter, outrage, right? And it's not just them over there 
it's not those crazy people over there virtue signaling or those crazy people over there that are just quick to uh, to anger it's it's all of us and at times we don't realize we're doing it because we're not doing this consciously we're not saying today i think i'm going to pretend to be really pissed off about anti-semitism you it's not it's not an intentional act right we go on social media or on blogs or even in our everyday conversations and we tackle the problems we feel are within our reach, right? So much out there is completely insurmountable or at least it seems insurmountable, right? So you may have some real concerns about government policy and it just feels it's insurmountable. How, how, how do I begin to topple that? It feels as though something that's out of your reach. But what's within reach is Judith underscore 87 talking shit. So we tackle that, not because we're bad people that are pretending to be angry, but because we feel as though that is some sort of progress. It's progress within my reach. It's something I can do that is within my means, you know? And it's important with this book to realize that it's not finger pointing, actually. It's actually about saying we need to analyze and assess ourselves and figure out how to be more effective in our communications. Because as I say, it's not just us going out there with uh, this intent to be faux-raged. We, we're quite convinced that we're doing something. You know, we're, we're actually convincing ourselves that mob justice is social justice. Quite often we conflate the two. We're like, oh, brilliant. We're all piling on this thing. Look at us go. You know, we, we are part of a movement. And it's like, it's mob justice. It's not actually social justice, but cool. Get your rocks off. You probably feel quite good in that moment. And it's about, it's about, channeling, it's about channeling that same sentiment, but into things that matter. So how do we decipher between true outrage and faux rage? Because I'm a fairly, I like to think I'm a fairly sensitive, reasonable person. I don't want people to feel uncomfortable with the, the things that are on TV, the David Williams from 10 years ago, the Bo Selector. The, I also don't want them to feel uncomfortable about gender pay gap, all of these different things. But as you've said before, there's a line somewhere. There has to be a line that's drawn. So how do we decipher between the two? Uh, there's so much in what you just said that I'd love to unpack. Um, part of it is in our need to be heroes, right? And we feel as though, and, and you know who, who, who quite often feel that way? It's kind of white allies who almost go to the extreme where they're like, I'm going to be offended by everything on your behalf because <laughs> I don't, don't, I don't, I don't want to be, I don't want to be the image of privilege. I don't want to be the image of supremacy. So I'm going to go the other way and I'm going to bend over backwards. And actually that's offensive and that's offensive and that's offensive. And then you get this sort of performative, I'm on my gap year um, helping out all the orphanages. And it's actually self-serving. It's to kind of, it's to negate a privilege that you feel you have. And that's a big part of, of the issue with outrage where we're doing it not for, for the progress of a cause 
but for the positioning of ourselves to appease ourselves and make ourselves feel better and feel like I'm, I'm contributing in some way, you know? And if it's, if it's not rooted in a genuine desire for change, it's, it's not sustainable. And that's where you get these people that they seem really progressive and they seem like great people, but what they care about this week isn't what they cared about three weeks ago. And then there was something totally different they cared about a few weeks before that, because you're trying to care about everything. And I say in the book, and I say to people all the time, if you stand for everything, you're going to knack yourself. You'll never sit down and you'll, con you'll not really make any contribution to everything. You'll be giving a little bit of yourself to so many causes. And as like you say, you'll sign a petition here and you'll retweet something over here and then you'll forward something else to eight friends. But are you committed to changing every anything? I think, I think that's part of the issue in that we feel obliged to care about everything there are enough people for us to each play our position and create progress in so many avenues right the civil rights movement I, again i use it as an example okay there are incredible creatives for example james baldwin uh maya angelou Angela Davis, who had to kind of park their creativity and be like, okay, I've got to figure out the civil rights movement first. It's like, you can't just be a poet. You can't just be a, a, a writer. We've got, to, we've got to tackle this issue first. And you see that progress when people kind of ball themselves into a fist, right? We're kind of busy off being fingers <laughs> these days. We're like, well, I'm, I'm over here doing that. I'm over here doing this and we don't pack the punch of a fist because we're not concerted in sustained efforts. And I think that's a, a real big issue is that we need to care about things, but we need to be unwavering. We need to be sustained and dedicated in those things, which the internet doesn't always give you room to do. You know, if you, if you look at what's trending, if you refresh it in 30 seconds, it's going to be a, jumble of new things in a, in a different order and we feel like oh shit we're talking about this now and we feel an obligation to move with the conversation the conversation moves so fast online we're not caring about anything long enough to actually create change because we see what happens when when we do you get moments like black lives matter which wasn't a, a trending for a day wasn't trending for a week it it forced people to have self-reckoning. It, it created conversations. It, it felt like a bit of a social shift because it wasn't something that just you refreshed and it disappeared. And that's where there's so much power in outrage. It's, it's not in, in what you say there where you're like, I, I, I want people to be happy here and I want people to be happy here. And I want... It's about saying, okay, I can't be all things to all people right, right now. Where can I affect change? Where, where can I be a strong ally? Where can I be committed to a cause as opposed to trying to stand for everything, which is bloody exhausting. Whose job is it to police people being faux raged? Is it nobody's job? Right. Okay. So it, it so is nobody's job. And this is, this is an important point I make in the book. This book isn't me saying, you know, this is a manual. This is a, this is a manual that you must follow to be correctly outraged. It's, it's a roadmap. 
right? It's like an old school A to Z. Where it takes you is up to you, all right? If you want it to take you east, it will take you east. If you want it to take you west, it will take you west. It's me taking a deep dive and kind of serving up everything that I found. And one thing that I found is, look, outrage is subjective, you know? It's like this, again, this idea of, of cancel culture. There's no universal way to establish if something deserves to be canceled. Something that offends you may not offend me. There may be something that truly offends me, but it doesn't reflect your lived experience. So you can have empathy, but you can't be outraged on the scale that, that, that I am, right? So you can't police what I'm outraged by, just as I can't police what you're outraged by, all right? And often you get these people that are like, oh, I don't get it. Why is, why is everyone overreacting to this thing that's allegedly transphobic? You're not, you're not trans, so you cannot measure the offense, right? It's again with, with anti-Semitism, it's, it's been um, on the agenda recently because of Nick Cannon. And people are like, there's people like, oh gosh, but did he mean to be anti-Semitic? If, if you are not the target of a topic, or if you're not the person that is directly affected, it is not your place to determine whether or not the outrage is warranted. What I urge people to do in this book is to ensure that when they are outraged, they have gone through that process of, of, of checking with themselves whether there's a purpose, whether there's, whether there's meaning, whether there's reasoning behind this avenue. You know, and, I, and I think that's the most important thing, not, not us dictating how other people respond, but in us being responsible for how we respond. You know, that's hard though. It's much easier for oh, me yeah. to just be outraged and and do a retweet and say "fuck J.K. Rowling." I never liked <laughs> I never liked Harry Potter anyway. Hermione's a bitch. Buddy <laughs> Ron Weasley never liked him. Um, look, we we don't give ourselves enough credit, man, for how much we can steer and curate our own experience. So we often go onto the internet and as I said, we, we just respond to what's already there. Yeah. So, okay. Everybody's angry about this thing. Quite often the people that are responding to it didn't consume it firsthand. They, they you know, quite often we react to things we didn't watch live or to things written in newspapers that we don't read, you know, or something that was said on a TV network in a country that we don't live in, but we've consumed this transgression online and now we feel obliged to respond to it again absolutely exhausting there is enough in your realm firsthand that you can respond to we have this thing where we seek out offense which really frustrates me we kind of we look for the hot topic of the day we say okay what's everybody talking about okay this is trending there are a lot of tweets about that i better put my two pence in and as i I describe it in the book as the outrage conga line, right? We don't know where it's going. We don't know where it's, where it's, where it started. Oh, fuck it. Let's we're all like, join. We're doing a fucking conga, mate. Fine. And that's, that's what these mass moments of outrage often are. People were with the David Walliams book, um, with the, with the kids books, right? Which was, um, kind of topic of discussion recently on social media. I read it 
and I was like, I, I, I sort of, I read the threads started by Jack uh, Monroe. Um, I, I read the threads and I was like, fuck, this book sounds absolutely awful. Like his books sound horrendous. This is, but then I was like, I've got enough shit in my day today. I don't need to join the David Walliams pylon, if I'm being completely honest. We don't give ourselves the credit that we we should be giving ourselves. We don't we don't harness that power to create to curate, sorry, what we consume. You can say, not having that, zoning out, blocking that, muting that, unfollowing you, not joining this conversation. Oh, I've got a view on that, but is my perspective adding anything unique that hasn't been said? Probably not. Bob just said it 10 minutes ago. I'd just be saying it in a different way. And if we, if we do that more, more effectively, more, more consciously, we'll not only uh, sort of rediscover the power in our outrage, but we'll have a better experience online. So many people kind of tap out of, of Twitter and Facebook because they're like, I can't take it. I, can't, I, I hate it. It's negative. It's like, you could actually, you actually have the power to curate who you follow and to control what you consume. Absolutely. That's why I only follow, I think, 98 people now. And oh, taking, good that number. Down, taking that down from like 2,000 or something has just cleaned it up. Because I just see the things that are interesting, not necessarily stuff that I agree with. I wonder how much of this, especially to do with social media, is mm. to do with the frictionlessness and the lack of consequence from thought to projection of the things that appear in our consciousness. So a hundred years ago, in order for me to go and tell a large number of people anything, it would have actually been quite effortful. I've had to have yeah. got my boots on, told the wife that I was leaving, you know, jumped on my horse or my cow or whatever. Do you ride cows? <laughs> anyway, um, I can tell that I'm such a farmhand. If, if you're riding a cow in this story, mate, commit. Thank you. Thank you. That's not, not prejudice against cows, not prejudice against cow. horses either. Yes, I am. And I'm, I'm just like shouting it, you know, like, ho, oh, it is, there is a, a huge problem over here. And I'm like alerting people. It's so effortful. That time in between me having a thought, a rising consciousness, and then going, right, I'm off to get the cow. Like all of that different, <laughs> that process would have given me chance to reflect. Actually, is this worth me getting the cow out? Is this worth me going and shouting at all of my neighbors? And then because there's no anonymity, because people actually have to see you, you see their reactions, you're very, uh, you're, you're not detached from the act of the saying or the receiving of the words either. And I wonder mm -hmm. how much this always on communication, constant dopamine hits were not built to consume. Human brain is not built to consume the entire globe's news in real time like yeah. by definition obviously we're not and then when again you have this frictionless sort of brain to mouth or uh, keypad system that we've got going on at the moment i think that might lend people to say a lot of things that they maybe don't agree with and obviously that pushes them out into these extremes a absolutely like you've hit the nail on the head that is a huge part of the issue it's it's the speed of the internet, right? And people often find themselves wanting to be fast rather than factual, right? It's like, oh, I, I, better, I better sum up how I feel about this very quickly as opposed to, okay, let me read this and let me take this in and let me, you know, have a beat. We don't give ourselves that beat. And 
again, as you said, a great point. We're not built to consume the world's news, right? In, in real time, which is why you find clickbait is the, is the source of so much outrage. Because we haven't got time to consume the whole article. So I'm going to base my judgment on that headline, right? So if that headline says, Chrissy Teigen aboard Jeffrey Epstein's private jet, fuck, Je- Chrissy Teigen's a pedophile. Do you know what I mean? That, like, I, 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 that's how I have to consume the news. So now Chrissy Teigen's a baddie in my eyes. I've got time to read the article. And that's how so much of our news is consumed. And that's why we often get ourselves in a pickle with our outrage because we haven't done the due diligence. We haven't actually researched what it is we're angry about. Or we've, we've got angry about a, a 25 second clip of an interview. Oh, I haven't got time to go and read the, the whole thing or I haven't got time to go and watch the whole interview. I'm going to base my judgment on this bit that was taken entirely out of context. And that is how I'm going to form my judgment. It's this issue of speed, which seems to have rid us of all our critical thinking. And it's another, it's another reason why our outrage is in a state of disrepair. The thinly spread outrage which we're giving back might actually be a reflection of this thinly consumed information coming in. It seems like that, that would make quite a bit of sense, that no one has the time to genuinely connect with a social cause that they thoroughly care about because there's three a day that they need exactly. to try and keep up with. Exactly, exactly. We are, we are the sort of the cure and the cause of, of, of this thing. We, we are putting out what we're consuming and then we're consuming what was being put out and we're just in this sort of horrible dystopian echo chamber. Um, <laughs> and it is this, it's a carousel that I want to get off, mate. So I've had this. This is one of the proofs, which is actually really cool. Um, I, I know this is early. Did you ever get one of those? I did. That's a, that is, that's I've had this for a, one day. I've had it. Exactly. I'm going to have to get you to sign this for me. But this has been, this has been with me since February. Begin, beginning of the year. Yeah. Yeah. So what would you, if you were to do uh, an appendix to this based on from when, when you finished writing it until now? Would there have been anything else that you would have thrown in? Was there some stuff that appeared and obviously you were like, we need to get the book out now, but also stuff that was like, fuck, like I wish I wish I could have put that situation in or that situation in. Is there anything that's appeared in 2020 that you, you, you would have liked to have had? I think the, the great thing about this book is that, as I said, it, it could have come out at any time because it's just, it's symptomatic of the world we're living in. And if I had written it next year or the year after, there would have just been a different set of case studies, right? Making the same points, but a different set of case studies. JK Rowling, for example, is as much as I've tried to disconnect from these instances of cancel culture, which as I'll I'll always give the caveat that cancel culture is a myth, but JK Rowling, it, it, it fascinates me because everyone is like, J.K. Rowling has been cancelled. This is, this is the problem with this idea of cancel culture, right? It doesn't exist, okay? J.K. Rowling has not been cancelled. 
all right? Pe- people are not burning their Hogwarts merch, right? People are not, they're not shutting down Harry Potter land. They're not. Her, her, her books are still performing well. The, the, the issue with, with J.K. Rowling speaking out against cancel culture is what fascinates me more than this idea of cancel culture itself because we've created a climate where people can evade accountability by hiding behind this idea of cancel culture. So rather than saying, maybe I've messed up here and I need to have conversations and I need to go for a bit of self-reckoning, you can say, the world's gone mad. Look, they're bullying me. I'm, and, and you can hide behind this, this veil, which almost inverts the entire thing and makes, and makes you a victim. And I write about this in, in the book, just with a different reference. In the book, it's Danny Baker, who has said, um, you know, he put that picture out of a sort of newborn royal baby, a monkey. I don't know, monkeys as a motif returns in this book. Um, but yes, he put, he put a picture out of a monkey in reference to the royal baby, got fired from his BBC radio job. And rather than saying, shit, that was tone deaf, and I completely get why it appears offensive for me to post a picture of a monkey uh, in reference to a biracial baby. The first glimpse of melanin in the royal family, there's some unconscious bias maybe on my part that I'm, my mind's even posting a monkey picture. His reaction was, cancel culture, man. Th- these snowflakes, man. It, like The world's gone crazy. And that's part of the issue with cancel culture is that it's, it's created a, a curtain behind which you can, you can actually hide from your transgressions and divert the conversation and make it about free speech and make it about censorship rather than actually accepting that you may have made a bad decision. You may have had a, a, a poor choice of words. You may have expressed yourself wrongly. Rather than accepting that, there's now something to hide behind. There has to be a time when that's not the case, though. For instance, I don't know whether you looked at... <clears throat> you know, remember Mario Lopez from Saved by the from Bell? From Saved by the Bell, yeah. Did, did you see... A.C. Slater. A.C. Slater, yeah. <laughs> he just hasn't aged at all. At all. No. At all. Um, did you see what he said about uh, children undergoing gender reassignment under the age of three? What did he say? Bloody so, hell. This is like... Maybe a year and a bit ago now, I spoke to Andrew Doyle on the show about this. And um, basically, it was the most measured pedestrian statement I've ever seen from someone. No one reasonable would have taken offense at this. And he essentially said this long-winded, loads of hyperbole, loads of caveats. And then he eventually, eventually says, I don't know if children under the age of three should be being told that they're perhaps the wrong gender. Like you know, my business partner's kid is like a fireman one minute, then a postman the next, then a, a, a astronaut the next and blah, blah, blah. But I don't think that any of those, and he said this real gentle sentence, put it out there and just got annihilated. There were people calling for his head at MTV. Three days later, he gives the the most groveling, I have educated myself. I am always been an ardent supporter of the LGBTQ plus community. I believe in this. I, I have further blah, blah, blah. And I just think that there, there was nothing wrong with what you said, 
You're talking about people who are too young to have sex, but are young enough to have their gender reassigned. Like, I don't know. That, that, that to me seems like one of the times where cancel culture does come for someone. The, the, the cancel culture in situations like this, which is, which is what, one of many, it's difficult when people are clumsy in their messaging, right? And often we mean well. We, we, we're trying to say something. We've inadvertently offended somebody, right? We, we see this happening a lot. The weight of public opinion is such that we are now just stifling conversation. We're even, like, I was about to call him AC Slater. Ma <laughs> Mario Lopez may have had a conversation with a, a, a parent of a, a, a trans boy later on down the line and actually been like, you know, bloody hell, I actually never been in that situation. I've now had some conversations. As much as I think I, my idea was rooted in, in, in sense, I can kind of see why there may be exceptions to that, right? What, what we've done though is we've stifled it and you force someone into a corner, you force them to renounce their feeling and you've just kind of hustled an apology out of somebody, which again, I write about in the book, these kind of hustled apologies, which actually mean nothing at all. And my fear around that is that we're just kind of creating this sort of dystopian future, man, where everyone is scared to speak, everyone's scared to drive an SUV, because they're going to look like they don't care about the environment, you know, and like, everybody just wears grey because anything else. Just might in case be you culturally appropriate something. Exactly. So can't can't wear anything that might be a material that is in some way indigenous to some other place. Everybody's just their their hairs. We're just gonna have to just not have our hair in any style. Um, I I fear that where we're kind of just listening to elevator music and driving our hybrid cars to just be as inoffensive as possible. And as, as black mirror as it sounds, I feel as if, if there's not an outrage intervention, that that is actually where, where we're headed, where there'll be no more Mario Lopez's because nobody's speaking. Exactly. Well, I mean, I feel that as well on this show. Like I try and just have as little filter as possible from brain to mouth so that the audience has faith that what they hear is what I think. Thankfully I have quite, or usually have quite reasonable views as opposed to if I was someone who was having to self-censor all the time or just immediately yeah. being bothered. But I feel that. I'm like, oh, God, like, is this wrong? Because last year it maybe wasn't so wrong, but this year I'm seeing people getting in real bother for t t talking about things around these. So when the rules are always changing, yeah, it can be really, really worrying. And if that's someone like myself and, and you who talk a lot professionally, what about the person on the street? They're not supposed to be a professional. They're not supposed to spend their time oh. really finding the nuance of where their position sits. Exactly. And that is, I, I, I start one of the chapters in the book saying, I have written this book out of sheer terror, right? I'm writing this book because I think if somebody doesn't write it, it's just who's going to be left? Just the Pope. You know, and then the Pope will fuck up. <laughs> He's too white, yeah. Then, then, then there'll be some skeletons in the closet there. It's as if we're, we're creating a, a framework of perfection um, and sort of moral high ground. We're raising the bar to levels that we ourselves will at some point fall short of, right? So 
we're, we're kind of placing this parameter around acceptable behavior, which is getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller until, until none of us are in it. And it's that, that that's what terrifies me. And that's part of why I, I wrote the book, as you say, in a vocation where you're a broadcaster or you're, you're a podcaster, where you're literally, you're documenting your views. Right now we're saying, this is how I feel in 2020, dig this up in 2040. We've literally, we've put it out there now, right? And on social media, you're documenting your views in a landscape that is ever changing. And you are putting something there in perpetuity that we can now dig up in six, seven years and say, oh, God, you, you said you woman? You used to think that. You used to we think don't that. say woman anymore. <laughs> how, how, long, how archaic. I know. You know? You, how long should someone be held accountable for a thing that happened in the past? Because we're seeing a lot of sort of past experiences get dredged yeah. up. Yeah. Where's the, where's the line for that? Again, the, these things are, are, are subjective, right? So there are, for example, there are people who have just been on Twitter for 12 years and look, it was the wild, wild west back then, right? So you've got somebody who joined Twitter when they were 14 and said some absolutely ridiculous shit, uh, but now they're, they're 26 and shit, their potential employer has found out that who they were, they were, they were body shaming um, some TV presenter uh, when they were 14 right there needs there needs to be a certain level of of common sense right if you were saying something 12 years ago but you're a 60 year old man and you were you were still in your 40s and your 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 opinions were well formed i think these things need to be need to be handled on a, on a case by case basis but it's like with, it's like with cultural moments like like little britain and 40 Towers, where it's so difficult because, again, tones change. Attitudes change. That, that is the nature of, of the world we're, we're living in, right? And what, what frustrates me with the mob is this idea that you have to be tethered to your attitudes, right if you if you felt that way then or you made that show then that must be reflective of how you feel now right if everything we are doing is for the purposes of progress so if we are getting outraged because we want gender pay gaps to disappear if we're being outraged because we want policies to change or we want attitudes to change and we are out there we're protesting in the streets because we want things to change then we see that there's a capacity for change. You can't have both. You can't say, look at who you used to be. You'll never change while saying, but I'm going to go and out here and protest in a hope for change. <laughs> you, you, you cannot have it both ways. If you're going to contribute to the fight for change, you have to also accept that people have the capacity to change. And I feel like there's a real lack of compassion uh, on, on the internet. Uh, at, at the moment, especially when it comes to sort of retrospective rage, things that you said then, things that you felt then. As I said, th there's going to be nuance in, in, in these different cases, but for the most part, if somebody has been held accountable and they've said, I 
I said that eight years ago and I'm ashamed and I'm embarrassed and I do not stand by that person I was eight years ago. There needs to be the space to allow for that. You know, you can't say, no, not having that. You, you are cancelled for who you were you. in 2012 because you, you genuinely, you cannot, you cannot have it both ways. It's dangerous to judge the actions of today by the, uh, judge the actions of yesterday by the rules of today. Like really, really dangerous. Oh, yeah. um, and it's the John Cleese thing, the Faulty Towers thing, such a good example. You're talking decade. Was it like 1970s, something like that? Like, I'm, not, I'm not sure of the date, but they, look, there is so, blackface, Faulty Towers, slavery. There, there is so much which in its time was accepted right and yeah we we cannot turn a, a blind eye to the world we once lived in and and that that's where sometimes i'm like should these things be coming down should you just delete 40 towers should you just delete little britain or do these things need to come with a disclaimer up front that says this is the world we used to live in you know or, or, or are, we, are we going to completely erase the, 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 the history and the history that is littered with bigotry? It is. It's littered with, with, with prejudice. I think it's actually a cop-out for the people that perpetuated those views. I think it's easy for you to just pretend you didn't, didn't have those views. I think it's easy to yank Little Britain down and... Um, allow Matt Lucas and David Williams to escape that. That's, that's too much of a cop-out. Not, that, that should exist, continue to exist as a representation of the tone of the day. I, and that's my honest opinion. I, I actually don't think we should be pulling things off streaming services and pretending they didn't happen because that allows you to escape what was the tone of the day, you know? That's, that's how we make lessons, right? The lessons exactly. are created by us being able to reflect on history. You know, one of the, the greatest ever losses was the burning of the Library of Alexandria. Like, if yeah. all of that compiled wisdom hadn't been lost, like, it genuinely, I think we believe we're sort of these technocratic gods that are always just going to be omnipotent and all of our future generations are going to remember shit. It's like, no, there is no cultural canon that will remember Little Britain in a hundred years' time if you decide to, or if you decide to delete anything, if you get rid of all of the memories of all of this stuff and it's only available on fucking VHS, like to be put into a, a machine that no one has anymore, that very, very much will disappear from the uh, the artifacts the architecture of cultural history and then then what happens are you do you just have to relearn that lesson again is it like oh okay well we don't have that we don't have the proof that that lesson went wrong so like might just stumble upon it again yeah and look it's all a, it's a bloody it's a tapestry isn't it like our our experience um as humanity's experience existence is a tapestry of everything that has happened you can't just be like don't like don't like how that patch looks anymore. It's part it's part of it. I'm afraid. Like part of this quilt is going to be fucking ugly, and it's it's what we've built. And as we progress, we will like the look of it more, right? You can't just start unstitching all the other shit, right? <laughs> and I was having this conversation the other day about Gwen Stefani, right? 
What's she done now? What's she done? She hasn't done anything now. Oh. If, if you look at... <laughs> If you look at old Gwen Stefani videos, right, where she had yeah. a bindi, she had dreadlocks, and she had three Japanese girls on leashes. This was her look. <laughs> Gwen Stefani would never get away with that. You, you just couldn't. It, it's, you're offending everybody. <laughs> it's almost that, like Gwen's gone one, out of her way yeah, to find yeah. how many different cultures she can appropriate. Yeah. How, how many birds can I kill with one stone, <laughs> yeah. right? And you'd, you'd never get away with it now. But I was a Gwen Stefani fan when Gwen Stefani was, was out. And I didn't recognize how actually under the lens of, of woke 2020 how awful this is going to look i can't just erase my experience as a teen that quite enjoyed a bit of hey baby by gwen stefani right and it, it it's about as you say just taking these as as lessons as, as things to learn from and accepting that look we, we will we will like the look of our of our tapestry the, the more we progress it's good to reflect on the fact that you were present when that sort of stuff came up as well, right? Because it reminds us that we were also either um, ignorant or willfully blind or um, a part of whatever society and structure allowed anything in the past. Like uh, Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark was put on Variety's 10 films which should come with a warning label because it showed stereotypical depictions of Hindu people as the people that will try and take your heart out, um, mm. as, the, as the evil villains. And uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is also a part of that list. Um, a, a whole bunch of other, other movies. When those movies came out, I, I haven't been seeing this huge campaign for Raiders of the Lost Ark to come down over the last 30 years. Like people outside of Harrison Ford's house with pickets. Which means that you were there then but your opinions have changed to now. And it harks back to what you said about growth. Like if well, your I, opinions are different. Mm, I, would, I would give that the caveat though, that quite often people who are the, the butt of the joke, right? And qu quite often you have movies and you have TV programs that punch down, right? Let's take the piss out of Indian people. Let's take the piss out of, of black people. Let's take the piss out of women, right? The, the nature of so much dated media punched down and you don't get that as much now, but the people who were the target or, or, or the butt of the joke weren't necessarily empowered or in a position to say, not really enjoying this. Right. So it does always need to come with a, with a caveat because there's no blanket rule that says that was the past and we can't dwell on the past. This is kind of what my book is about. Every situation is nuanced, right? There's no paint by numbers response that is going to fit every single instance of, of outrage. And there will be, there will be people that, that watched Little Britain and were offended, right? That, that were offended by its depiction of, 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 of chav culture and felt that it was classist. But there was no outlet. Or they didn't feel like, what, what am I going to say? You know, everyone's enjoying the show. Or there'll be people that were uncomfortable with the blackface that now feel as though the, the tide has, has changed. And, and actually, I, I, I can say that I felt this way, you know? So there, there is always going to be 
be that side. And it's, and it's important, which is why I say it's, you can't be scared of that gray area, man. Like so, so much of our, our, our online arguments are because we refuse to accept that there's a gray area and there almost always is. Any non-typical view that someone holds, if you say, I am a, this person, conservative, a person of Jewish heritage, Chinese, whatever it might be, if you have, let's say you're a conservative, but you're also pro-life, that is seen as a, a chink in your armor, as like a weakness mm. in your viewpoint. And mm. I think that that is one of the reasons why people seem to be taking their views wholesale rather than piecemeal. That it's like, I am a this person. I love that. I love that. Yeah. Therefore, I'm going to go through the rest of it. That's not an original thought. That is me taking it from someone else, but I don't know who it is. So we're going to, I'm the closest person that we're going to reference. <laughs> um, but yeah, that during a debate, if you have a nuanced view, the other side sees that as a weakness. Ah, you see, you see, I knew he wasn't really pro Trump, Democrat, yeah. whatever it might be, mm. because he doesn't agree on this. And it's like, yeah. yeah, obviously I don't, because I don't happen to be Donald Trump. I don't happen to be Joe Biden. I don't happen to be like the, the, this particular person. And with that in mind, I'm going to have these little nuances and these gray yeah. areas. And that, I write in the book about tribalism, which is something that really, it, it, we just career down these cul-de-sacs of opinion because we feel railroaded by our tribes, right? So you might feel as though, shit, I'm a, I'm a vegan from the three counties and I've got to stand for everything that is an affront to my community and my veganism. And I, I can't fall outside of the parameters of what it means to be in that tribe. So often we find people speaking up because it's an affront to their tribe. Not necessarily because they personally are offended, but because they feel they're supposed to be offended, right? Shit, this person has said something about women. Fuck, I'm not that offended, but I have got a feminism podcast. I better say something. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Or, and you get, you get so much of that. People feeling as though, because of the groups to which they subscribe, that they have to respond to everything or they're letting their tribe down. And that, that is when you get people shouting about a H&M hoodie because I'm black and I've got to be angry about the monkey hoodie, right? You know? And it's, it's that which doesn't allow for nuance quite often. It's like vicinity offence. It's like, this isn't something I'm offended by, but it's kind of, it's kind of there's someone near me that might have done so, it's in my realm. Yeah, it, it <laughs> yeah. is. It's in, it's in the vicinity. Um, so what can people do? How can the listeners move forward and, and, and sort of act a little bit better? If you were to leave people with some tips of how to be better outragers, how can we make outrage great again? Oh, again, this is, there are so many. This is like a three-step guide, right? It's, it's about you figuring out for yourself what you care about. Again, the... The worst thing, the biggest disservice I could have done in this book is tell people what to care about. I don't like, I just, it, 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 it doesn't work uh, to try and, as I say, fit, fit a framework around somebody else's ideas and, and belief systems. That's the beauty of humanity. There are going to be little differences in, in all of us. What I will always say is you, you owe it to yourself to only be outraged 
by that which truly outrages you. And that seems like a really sensible concept. Like, yeah, of course I'm only outraged by things that out, outrage me. Duh. No, you, you may think you are genuinely outraged, but if you were genuinely outraged, then you want to get something out of it, right? The purpose of outrage is progress. It's, it's the only reason outrage should exist is because you feel something needs to change, right? I am outraged by this because these, these policies are, are archaic. I'm against this because I feel as though it is racist, it's offensive, it's sexist, and, and that needs to change. I want this to happen, right? Which is why I continue to use the analogy of outrageous currency. Treat your outrage as you would a real investment, right? You wouldn't blindly be like, oh, I'll put 5K in that. Oh, I'll put 10K in that. These are your life savings, right? Your outrage is your emotional life savings, right? It, it, is, it is yours to invest as you see fit. Every single time you are outraged, you are spending your currency. You are investing it. Stop doing it blindly. Stop doing it where you are not seeking a return on your investment because you are pouring your outrage down the drain, right? Because you want to see a return on your investment and, and you owe that to yourself. I really, really hope that the internet takes heed of this. It sounds like a much nicer place to live. Whatever's inside outraged seems like a much more wonderful place to be than we are right now. Yeah, I just, I just think we need an intervention, which is what this book was. It's for all the outraged junkies or friends of junkies, you know? Sometimes your crackhead friend is not going to read the book and you've got to read it for them, right? So this is for anybody in need of an intervention or, or who knows somebody that might. I love it. Uh, it will be linked in the show notes below. Of course, if you want to go and check this out, it will be available on Amazon. Do you say that you've done, you've done an audio version as well? So you've done the kit, there's the a, audible? There's an audio book. Yep. If, I mean, if you're not sick of my voice an hour into this podcast, there's some more in the audio book. If you, if you don't like this tone, go for the hardback. <laughs> yes, something else. It's a fairly easy read as well, right? You know, you could probably crack this out in a few days, but it's really dense and there's some, there's some great laughs in. So yeah, linked in the show notes below. Anything else you want to plug? Darty, anywhere other places that people should go? No, read the book, share it, uh, spread the word. I think... This is one of those books. I'm not so much fussed with people going out and buying it. I would love you to read this book and just give it to somebody else and then tell them to give it to somebody else. It's not about shifting the units on this one. I think it's about continuing the conversation. So please, uh, yeah, recycle your outraged book once you've read it. <laughs>